Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is historian Nancy Kane, who holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Dr. Kane's research focuses on effective leadership and how leaders, past and present, craft lives of purpose, worth, and impact. She's the author of multiple books, including Ernest Shackleton, Exploring Leadership, The Story of American Business from the Pages of the New York Times, and Brand New, How Entrepreneurs Earned Customers' Trust from Wedgwood to Dell. Her latest book is Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times, which has just been released. Kirkus Reviews calls it engaging and unusually rewarding, as well as wise, thoughtful, and valuable, and I couldn't agree more. Dr. Kane, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. So to start with, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write Forged in Crisis? Well, I wrote the book, although I didn't understand this at the time, I wrote the book because I found myself in the midst of a perfect storm of crises, none of which I had seen coming. My father dropped dead. My husband walked out on me in the marriage. A horrific divorce ensued. I got cancer then I got cured, then I got cancer again. And all of that happened in a very short period of time. And I didn't understand how to make sense, how even to navigate through the high winds and big waves of these calamities. And one night, early on, early on in the midst of the, you know, the, the gale force winds, I grabbed a copy of Lincoln's collected writings, a, you know, a condensed version, but still a hefty volume in itself. And I started reading about Mr. Lincoln. And I was reading from the back of his writings, so the end of his life, the presidency at the end of the Civil War, if you will, backward into time. And the more I read, the more I became fascinated by how leaders, people in positions of you know, great responsibility with great authority, and as it turned out, with big, worthy, hefty missions, you know, what they learned in crises, how they, how they steered through it, how they held on to their larger, better selves, and how ultimately what I learned in piecing together these different stories, the book is five, I think, compelling, riveting stories of individuals in the thick of it, in the midst of the perfect storm, how they made themselves into better, stronger, more courageous leaders in that in that storm in that context um and so that's how it began on my personal crises and then and then adding that to my professional deep deep interest in the history of effective leaders and thus after a very long pregnancy the book took me 10 years to write we have these five great stories this group biography our sponsor today is Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and that even includes me. I mean, I'm a certified disaster in the kitchen, as my wife often tells me. You know, and they do it all with super fresh, high-quality ingredients, partnering with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States, and sourcing ingredients to support a sustainable food system. The thing I really love about Blue Apron is that you get everything you need, and I mean everything, including all the seasonings delivered right to your door with clear, full-color preparation instructions. 
Plus, it's super flexible. I get to choose from a variety of meals, and I can even skip deliveries on weeks I'm out of town or don't want to get meals for whatever reason. And listen to the kind of meals you get. Here are their upcoming featured meals. Cheesy chicken and black bean enchiladas with salsa verde, shrimp marinara with spaghetti spinach and parsley, and maple gravy smothered pork chops with stewed collard greens and sweet potatoes. Mm. Plus, it's a really great value. All this delicious goodness is less than $10 per person per meal delivered right to your door. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So that definitely explains what this, that's something else. I mean, that definitely explains how you picked up uh, President Lincoln, but there are four other leaders that you profile. So I'm wondering, how did you come to select that very interesting and diverse group? So, so Ernest Shackleton, who's the first chapter in the book, and it's about you know, this astounding story, this jaw-dropping story of this explorer who finds himself and his 27 you know, men team stranded on basically a floating iceberg off the coast of Antarctica in 1915 when his ship gets stuck in the ice and then crushed by the icebergs. That story I had actually stumbled into when I was reading about the discovery of the South Pole, in, which happened in 1911. And I, and I stumbled into it, and I, I wrote a Harvard Business School managerial case about crisis leadership around the Ernest Shackleton story. And I thought, well, that would make another great example of a leader who was made into a much better individual, much more effective leader in crisis. And so I chose that because I knew something of the story. And then reading about Lincoln, I discovered Frederick Douglass, who I knew of, but didn't know much about, the abolitionist who actually came to know Lincoln. The two men grew to respect each other during the Civil War. Um, and then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's the fourth chapter and the least well-known, I think, to the American audiences. He was a Nazi-resisting clergyman. And again, I bumped into that story doing research for a presentation I was doing on leadership against all odds. And ditto, last story, Rachel Carson, the environmental activist who really did more than any other one person to found the modern environmental movement. She, I also found in the same context, I was researching lesser known figures, people that, were le that we were less aware of. And I was just fascinated by this woman who had worked alone and literally rocked the world as a woman scientist at a time when women weren't scientists and working by herself at a time when the, the folks that made a difference in science worked in groups. And so the stories were all born that way in, in, by happenstance, but then doing enormous amounts of research to uncover their own personal experience in crisis. So one of the things that defines why lots of people aren't in the book who are courageous and effective is that these people all left records of their personal experience that I could draw on as I tried to reconstruct what it felt like for these people to be in the midst of such calamity. Now, you just mentioned courageous and effective, and those are two words that come up a lot in the book. And so obviously, uh, I guess one could be courageous, but not be effective or, or vice versa. And you were specifically focusing on leaders who were both of those things, correct? That's correct. That's correct, Michael. And the, and the thinking there was that I wanted people, I was interested in people who were 
all these people are, are ordinary human beings. It's not that they're, you know, born in with some kind of, you know, ruby red slippers or great powers coming out of the womb. I, I wanted stories of, of ordinary people who made themselves capable of doing extraordinary things. And I defined extraordinary as a big worthy mission that was really one in which the odds were stacked against them. And, and for a worthy purpose, I mean, these people were moving the boulder of goodness forward, make no mistake about it. And so that meant I needed people that not only had the courage to face the odds, you know, no one is you know, against all odds, Frederick Douglass did a huge amount to eradicate slavery. Against all odds, Rachel Carson created a modern environmental movement. Against all odds, Bernice Shackleton brought that entire team home alive in 1916. And so I needed them to be courageous in terms of facing right the obstacles they did, but they also needed them to be effective because I wanted to tell the story of, pe- of people who accomplished what they set out to do. And, and so that's why you have both those, in my mind, important adjectives applied to these, to our protagonists. To the, to the fabulous or fantastic five, as my editor at Scribner calls them. Well, well, I mean, not only are they fabulous and fantastic, but they're they're so very diverse. And but but in looking at them, you find certain commonalities. And I was hoping you could talk a little about what these common features you find in in truly great leaders. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because the most, in some ways, the most important part of the book is as diverse as these stories are, and you know, and, and and any reader can get an enormous amount by just reading one story. So this is not somewhere. This is not a book where you have to pour through the whole thing chronologically in order to feel like you've digested something worthwhile to you. But but the but the the reason the whole is greater than the sum of the parts is just because of your question, Michael. And that is that first, each of these people um, obviously finds themselves in a crisis, but. But the important piece there is each of them resolves. And again, lots of us who have, you know, all so many of your listeners who have been through crisis know this resolves in the midst of the in the midst of the the storm to 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 make something good of it. That is, to, and and therefore not to get simply angry and bitter and smaller as a result of the adversity they're facing. Each somehow by hook or crook, I say in the book at one point, often by a hair's breadth. Each of these people resolves to find some diamond, even if they don't know where to look, even if they don't know what it's going to be, some diamond in the rough or make some kind of lemonade out of a lemon. So that's the first thing. Second, equally important aspect, you know, almost a twin common theme is that each of these people says, somehow out of this, I'm going to get better. You know, a little bit like Scarlett O'Hara shaking her fists in the middle of Gone with the Wind, saying, with God as my witness, I won't be hungry again. These people say, with, you know, with God as my witness, come hell or high water, I'm somehow going to get a little bit stronger from this. I'm going to learn something good for the making of me. Third, really important commonality or, you know, unifying skein. Each of these people, in two instances, they discover it very early on in their life, in the case of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Frederick Douglass, but the other three, Shackleton, Lincoln, and Carson, again, bump in, almost like a hot stove and a kid learning not to get burned again, bump into their mission, bump into a big, worthy mission that they recognize not only means something deeply to them personally, but that they are suited to try and enhance. So they, they understand, they're looking, they're thinking, they're reflecting, they're like, this is what I'm going to do. This is my destiny. This is my calling. And so they're, they're both internally emotionally aware enough to recognize what they're capable of and what they care about, 
but they're also keenly sighted and looking at the large stage and saying, okay, this is my moment. I need to get up onto the stage and embrace the cause. And that's another really important thing. And then I would say last, and there's, there are many other aspects, specific learned, you know, if you will, lessons of leadership that are common to all these people. The last one is that each of these people in the doing of this, in the messiness, this is real, these stories are messy and compelling. And, and, and we, we understand them because they, they are like our lives. This is not a Hollywood movie. This is the messy stuff of trying to do something that's hard and good and deeply satisfying. Each of these people discover in the doing of this, in the, in the pushing the boulder of goodness forward, that they actually find their own personal gratification, their own personal sense of a life well lived in serving other people. And again, any parent knows what this sound, what this feels like. Lots of people, you know, in the healing professions know what this sounds like. We would like our public servants today in Washington to discover this joy, this satisfaction, this service for others. But discovering that, and you see it in the book when these people learn it and realize it, is so incredibly empowering. It fuels them both inside and out, and that's another common theme. Now. There are some people who will tell you that great leaders, they're born, they're not made. And other people say, no, no, you actually can make a great leader. And I was thinking about this a lot when, when, when thinking about uh, your book. And I, I kind of find myself in sort of the middle ground. I feel like you can make some people into good leaders, but you can't necessarily make someone a, a truly great leader any more than you could make me a professional football player or something like that. And so I'm wondering, you've, you've spent an awful lot of time thinking about this and looking at this. Well, which one of these views, if any of them, is, is correct in your view? So let me, let, me, let me answer that and say, you know, I, I, I hear you and I, and I think, and, and I think that you know, a middle ground here is, it, it, it is a good one. The book comes down squarely on the side of leaders being made. And the definition I use, by the way, of courageous leaders is one that it, I think is useful for, for people to chew on. And it, it comes from David Foster Wallace, an American writer uh, who did a lot of political reporting at some point in his career and wrote this in an essay he wrote many, many years ago for Rolling Stone. Effective leaders, courageous leaders are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses and selfishness and laziness and fears and get us to do harder, better, more important things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. So I think that's a really interesting, compelling, right? That, that, that definition is very sustaining for me in terms of leadership. And, and when I say leaders, I come down in the book on leaders being made. It's not that nature, to your point, Michael, doesn't matter. Nature matters, right? We're all born with a set of endowments. Um, from you know the color of our eyes to the amount of your know, physical vigor that we have, and those qualities matter a great deal. But and there's no question of that. So you know I, I've never I'm not going to be long lived enough to be a great ever be a great pole vaulter, for example. Uh, even if I had the coordination, I don't. Some of that was born I was born with. But but nonetheless, um, you know I believe that it, almost any individual with the will. And in the, in the serious amounts of emotional awareness and great emotional discipline that I describe in this book of these people can, 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 through forging and through ongoing effort, make themselves into a very effective leader. And, and the reason is that, and the reason really comes out of something that a CEO once said to me when I made this movie on leadership lessons from Abraham Lincoln, this is many, many years ago. And the, and the gentleman was a guy named A.G. Laffley, who was 
who was CEO of Procter & Gamble on a couple of different important successful occasions, and lastly said to me in this movie, um, he said, leaders, I believe leaders are on balance made, not born, and they are made of these three ingredients. So again, his definition is a good one, and it marries what you're saying, Michael, with nature and nurture. He says, on the, on the first ingredient is that an individual comes into the world with a, a number of strengths and, and endowments, and then he or she walks their journey, accumulates mileage, and in the course of experience, the nurture part, right, adds that to their endowments, adds that to what they're born with. And then he said, the second ingredient, however, is that a moment arises on the larger stage that a given person recognizes, demands their leadership. So that's the second cup of sugar, if you will. And the third ingredient, like the flower part, if you will, is that the individual has to decide for him or herself to embrace the cause and get in the game. So three ingredients, nature and nurture, a moment, right, whatever it is from a child needing help to a school library closing to a health care repeal bill in Congress, a moment arises that an individual says and recognizes, demands their leadership, and then the individual says, I'm all in, I'm going to make a difference here. And so I think that's a great, I think that's a great distillation of what we are, you and I talking. Right. Absolutely. Now let's turn a little bit from leadership in general to uh, political leadership. I think there's just no question at all that uh, our trust in political leaders has declined a lot over the last, really, I'd say three or four decades at least. And so, so I'm wondering, do you think that the quality of our political leadership in and of itself has declined? And if so, do you have any thoughts as to why that might have happened? I think that certainly, the, yes, I think the quality of our leadership has, has declined. There's no question trust has you know, fallen precipitously. It's, at all, it's now at historic lows. You know, America, how much Americans trust Congress or, or, the, or the, the administration, right, relative. And that's not a political comment. It's a, it's a historian's comment about the moment pertains to politicians from across the spectrum and relative to, you know, any other moment when these kind of measures have been taken. So yes, it's down. Yes, it's still sinking. And I, and I think the quality of leadership has actually suffered partly as a result of that. The, the, the less we trust people, right, the, the more cynical we get as, an, as, as, a, as a citizenry, right? And, and for a long time, the less attention we pay. And it's never a good idea in democracy for too many citizens to be too far away from the political process. It's a little bit like substitute teachers and kids, right? When, you know, if you don't have ongoing diligence, you will not get a very responsive uh, teacher or a very responsive uh, political, a set of political elected representatives. And, we, and I think that's a piece of it. There's all kinds of other pieces, which you and your listenership know well, from you know, big money in politics to the kind of experiences and qualifications that I think implicitly, not in, not explicitly, we Americans are looking at and rewarding when we praise or admire or vote for elected officials. I think for a number of years now, predating the 2008 election, presidential, or excuse me, the 2016 presidential election, we've been way too seduced by things like what I call leadership bling, celebrity. Uh, attractiveness, you know, quick, quickly made money. As, as, those aren't necessary, any kind of necessary qualifications for courageous public service oriented leadership. We need to start, you know, re, we need to reset and start demanding issue, you know, of demanding of, of our elected or our candidates and our elected officials that they demonstrate good character. How do we test for good character? Well, for one thing, it's interesting to see how a person handles adversity. 
<laughs> what do they do when the when the situ when it's a really tough decision and there is no win-win situation? What do they do when the public interest conflicts with their own electability or pack running? Those are the kind of questions we want to be asking of the people that run for office and that we elect to run our government for us and our interests. We have to reset ourselves and get more demanding and get more attentive and start thinking about what we really admire in all kinds of leaders close to home, like teachers or firemen, fire, firefighters, or, you know, uh, or citizen activists that we all can agree on. We got to get much better and more discerning. That's going to make a difference to the leadership void in our, at least at the highest levels of power where it seems to me particularly prominent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you think that it's harder for any for someone to be a truly effective political leader today? I mean, I'm thinking in terms of this the so much more in your face media coverage, the social media stuff. And I, I, I'm just wondering, was it a simpler time back when, you know, FDR or Lincoln were doing their thing? And what did it make it easier for them, do you think? Well, I think it's a great question. I've thought about it in a different context before. I mean, we, someone, a student said to me, I've taught a lot of this material in my classrooms at Kennedy School and the business school at Harvard. And the student said to me, you know, what if Lincoln had Twitter? Would, it, would, his, would he have been a less effective president? And I'm not, you know, I, I, answered, I answered this at the time, and, and this was a year or so ago, and I stand by the answer. This was before we had a president that was, you know, doing a lot of public communicating by Twitter. And, and I said, you know, I don't think there's another president that I can think of that, that Abraham Lincoln had as much coming at him in terms of attention, letters, angry citizens, you know, grief-stricken mothers and widows, right, vitriolic Confederate leaders that wanted to assassinate him. I mean, he and, and he was control central. There was no West Wing. You know, he's, he had hundreds of letters a day, hundreds of visitors a day, hundreds of editors attacking him. I mean, he lived a full-on social media presidency, even without an iPhone and without the internet. And somehow, in the midst of all that stuff coming at him, a perfect firestorm of communications and fury and emotionally very high temperatures all around, Lincoln maintained the resoluteness, the detachment not to act immediately, the forbearance and empathy and, you know, great compassion at moments for for men that have fallen blue and gray on both sides of the conflict. So, so the answer to that, Lincoln is an example, and I admit that's a very high example, but he was president. He was president way before the internet. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I don't think people can be great leaders in the face of 24-7 complete connectivity or hyper-connectivity, but it takes a new kind of discipline, and it takes a new kind of focus, and it takes a new kind of access to one's owner, one's inner resources of compassion and empathy, and 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 moving slowly to do that in this white hot age, but we need those qualities anyway. So on with it. Let's let's find our muscles of resilience and forbearance, and let's try and screen for that in the in the kind of people we elect, because this is the world and it's not going away anytime soon. Right. Absolutely. Well, let, let's say, uh, take a hypothetical, let's say someone like uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren or John Kasich came to you, at, you know, and said, Nancy, I want to be a truly exceptional leader. How, how do you think I should, how, how can I make that happen? Uh, what, what would your advice to them be? 
So a couple of things I would say, and I do a lot of leadership coaching, so I've worked with a lot, mostly business leaders, but a lot of healthcare leaders who are working for nonprofits and profitable institutions, um, many fewer government leaders. So, if, so Ms. Warren or Mr. Kasich came to me. Um, I would say the first thing is create some sacred time every day. It doesn't have to be more than 15 minutes, but you need 15 minutes alone without your phone, without anybody, because you need to continually, as a leader, be getting right with yourself, literally meeting with yourself about what you're trying to accomplish, why you're trying to accomplish it, because self-interest and power and leadership bling can easily, in those rarefied worlds, get all mixed in with the, 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 the ultimately worthy reason you wanted to become an elected official. Why are you trying to do this? And then, equally important, how are you trying to do it? Right? Because again, it's very, very easy to get caught up especially at this moment in history when we are defaulting at some level to baser, right, less respectful, more divisive ways of doing things and communicating them, even on the highest public stages. You've got to be right with yourself about what you're doing, how you're doing it, and why you're doing it. And you can't do that with your aids and your iPhone. You've got to do that with the deepest part of your soul and your heart and your head. So the first thing is you need some reflection time, and you've got to make time for it. It's as important as anything you do. Second, you need to surround yourself with a lot of different people, many of whom will, will tell you why what you're trying to do isn't necessarily the right thing. So that Lincoln, for example, and this is, you know, doffing my hat to Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, right? The thesis of which is Lincoln surrounded himself with people from diverse views, off many of whom opposed him, so that he could in a sense, right, really try and hear a lot of different points of view and then make his decisions. So you need to be able to do that. You need, you need very, very important, you need to slow down. The, the higher the stakes, the slower you actually need to move. History proves that unequivocally. That white-hot action, especially when the emotional temperature is high, is rarely conducive to moving forward a big, worthy, difficult mission. And perhaps last but, but not least, there are never on any day, in any week, in any month, there are never 10 thing, important things that a leader needs to do. There are never more than three. So one of the things that our age does with our iPhones and 17 options at any nanosecond that come before us, one of the things our age has to learn, leaders have to learn, is how to focus on the one, two, or three things that only he or she can do and delegate, let go of, give away the rest because the really important stuff is often the hardest stuff and we don't want that getting pushed aside by, by our public servants because they're trying to do 12 things at once. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, they, it occurs to me that there we've had essentially two presidents who have served during this modern, you know, post iPhone era, President Obama and President Trump. And so I think it's fair to, to maybe make some sort of a comparison, although President Trump hasn't been in office that long. But how would you rate the leadership ability of our, our last two presidents, these two guys who had the, uh, uh, the privilege of serving during a time when uh, social media and all this has just taken hold in a way we've never seen before? So I, I give Obama much higher marks for his use of social media in the context of his mission as president and of the office of the presidency. And one of the unfortunate things that Mr. Trump has done by using Twitter in, in, in ways that are not necessarily as honorable in terms of the language, the purpose, the, the, the message sent, it is, is just very unfortunate is that he is, he is 
I suspect largely and unintentionally, but by now with some with some understanding, debasing the office of the presidency. This again isn't a, it's not a it's not a partisan comment. It, you know, it could be a Democrat doing the same thing or independent doing the same thing. But anyone that uses Twitter the way he does is debasing the office of the chief executive, the office of the head of the of of, of, of the administration of the one one critical branch of the U.S. Got with the U.S. democracy, and that I, I, any any American that, that that loves his or her country, you know, is always going to be a little bit anxious about that. So, so I'm, I, I think Obama understood the, the that piece, the honor of the office, and honored it more consistently than we've seen Trump, Mr. Trump do. But you know, it's early days. Maybe Trump is going to get you know kind of see the light on this and and change the tune and, and substance and and timing of some of his messages. Um, but I would give Obama much higher marks on on that account. I would also give Mr. Obama, again, this is not about the substance of what these men are doing. I would give Obama higher remarks, higher marks on 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 the on how he understood the the sweep of, of, of history in the context of his term as terms as president. So a president doesn't come into the office de novo, right? It's not the presidency is a is an institution that goes back to the to the Constitution, right? To the 1787. And, and understanding that history, not only the men and or the other people that have occupied that office, but what it has meant, what its what its footprint truly is in our time and around in our country and around the world, and that what that means for the institution going forward, it seems to me to be an ineluctable, very important part of the job of the president. And thus far, we haven't seen Mr. Trump evidence much interest in history, much interest in that kind of issue. As president, and I think both as a historian and as a citizen, that's just simply too bad, and really too bad. Well, you know, I also was thinking in terms of you mentioned a number of times uh, a certain reflectiveness, a willingness to to take some time, and you know, and and stop and take a breath, and and certainly. While, you know, I don't have access to the uh, daily schedule of President Trump, one gets the sense that reflectiveness is not necessarily something that is a, a strength of President Trump, one, would, one might say. No, you, you, I, have, I have no reason to think that's a strength, to your point, Michael. I, and yet, if we, if we think about history and some of the most high-stakes moments in American history, from the Cuban Missile Crisis to FDR's decision to declare war on Japan and Germany after Pearl Harbor, to Lincoln's decision to issue the um, Emancipation Proclamation, those were all huge presidential decisions. They were made with great reflection, great thoughtfulness, and, and real care, and, 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 and a sense of the, the stakes involved. And so the moving slowly, reflecting deeply piece is on evidence there. And, and I, you know, I, would, I would wish Mr. Trump to read those, some of those stories so he has a sense of this. Now, is, is there anyone currently serving an elective office who, who you feel is a courageous, effective leader? Well, there, you know, there are inevitably a number of people, even if we're not reading about them. Someone I've had the, the the privilege of meeting in the context of an award that was given to him at Harvard last spring is John Lewis, right? The congressman from, I think his congressional district is in Georgia. And, you know, he's been in Congress for a long time. He has a, he had a very active career and calling as a civil rights leader, <clears throat> working with Martin Luther King and some of the other members of the Christian Southern Christian Leadership Um uh, leadership coalition in the 1960s, and I was so I I'd not followed his career other than in, as a civil rights leader very actively, and then I was 
called on to introduce him at Harvard and to get to meet him and to talk to him and watch him in action. And he was extraordinarily impressive, courageous, passionate, loving, pragmatic, experienced, seriousness, full of energy, right? Recognition of the odds facing anyone who's fighting for racial justice right now, the timeliness of that, and yet completely inspiring to the hundreds of young people that were in the audience. He, He knocked my socks off. I was like, why aren't we minting more John Lewis's, right? People who want to get things done, want to work with members of the opposing party, love their country selflessly, courageously, and, you know, are, are just keeping on, keeping on in as public servants, underlying public servants. He is a, example A and example B and example C. And just to clarify something, I think for myself and for listeners, now my understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is this is not at all a, a partisan thing or a partisan point, but by which I mean you can recognize a leader as being both courageous and effective without necessarily agreeing with the direction in which they want to take a, a country or a state or something like that. So, I mean, just like, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, the, and my book is not a political book. It's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's being published through, through no con. There was no, there was no strategic planning here. This was when, when given the publication schedule and my work on the final manuscript, the book could get published. So it's coming out now at what seems like an exceptionally timely moment in history, but this is not a political manifesto. This is a book about that anyone that aspires to lead, whether you're a mother Again, working, you know, in, in, in your in your child's school system, whether you're a mayor, whether you're a state's attorney general, whether you're a fire chief, whether you're aspiring to be president of the United States or start a movement. This is a book for anyone that aspires to lead on with a worthy purpose. And it's, it's a book for it's, it's a book of life lessons. It's really not a political document, although it has now relevance in the current political climate. Yeah, and it, it struck me that those principles, really, that you mentioned earlier, they apply. You bet. To anything. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have one final question for you. It's kind of a more of a nuts and bolts sort of question, uh, which I like to try to ask one of these things to, to, to end on. Now, almost all candidates for political office say, well, you know, the, I'm a courageous, effective leader, certainly. And I think voters are right in being skeptical of these claims. And so I guess I'm wondering, how would you suggest in the end that, that voters try to evaluate these claims? I mean, is there any sort of uh, shortcut heuristic we can use, do you think, to get a decent sense of whether or not someone is going to be a, a great or at least a, a good political well, leader? So, so one, a couple of quick things. So first is we, you know, Town halls, um, you know, rallies, speeches, um, e- you know, candidates email all go- all you know candidates with an effective campaign operation have a series you know have 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 intake emails and communication channels to 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 try and get to the candidate whether you'll actually get a personal response I think is a much more open question but how the campaign answers this question is an issue so why not ask them what was the most difficult experience you have faced in your life when the odds were stacked against you and what did you do, right? What did you do as a human being? What did you do in the context of that urgent situation or that situation practically? That's a really interesting question. That question gets to people's muscles of resilience and moral courage. Another question, which is easily answerable if you're willing to spend 15 minutes hunting and packing on the internet 
is, is this person bought and paid for? And we all know what that means, doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. And you can learn about that. You can learn about what kind of decisions a candidate has made in terms of the money they've taken, the, the paid speaking engagements they, they have, right, they have responded positively to. You can learn an enormous amount about a candidate's values and who will own them, in a sense, who will command influence once they're elected by understanding more, just making yourself aware of who's funding this show and this person. That's incredibly important. And now, right, we have at least after 2016, and, and, and to a certain extent during the second Obama run for office, we now have the beginnings of candidates who are saying, I'm going to take my money in small amounts from individual citizens so that no one can question who owns me. So that's a, those two things are really, really good litmus tests for are we going to get a public servant or are we going to get someone who's looking for lifelong employment right, and the power, and the power train without any necessary commitment to one, good character, their own good character, and two, as important, the country and the people they're supposed to be serving. Well, I think we will close on that very good advice. Uh, Dr. Nancy Kane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It was a sincere pleasure, Michael. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsor, Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash tpg. Listener support is a huge help to us, and we really do appreciate it. So if you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, it's really helpful if you share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also really does help out. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just want to say hi to us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.